this idea of migrant and refugee and undocumented and immigrant and asylum seeker that we all use and that we've all normalized. But to really take some steps back and say, you know, how did this category even come to be created? It can only exist in relationship to the border. It only exists in relationship to the nation state. It only exists in relationship to power structures, right? Um, if you have, if there are no borders, you don't have migration. You just have mobility. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, my name is Hardeep Dillon. I'd like to welcome you all to our event today, Crisis at the Border, sponsored by Haymarket and Melville House. It's an honor to be in conversation with two uh, newly minted book authors, duly minted in one case. But before we begin, I want to make a brief land acknowledgement to the Maidu, Miwok, and Yusinan peoples whose land I currently reside on. I pay my respect to them and their ancestors. So today we are in conversation with uh, two, two authors and activists, Suchitra Vijayan and Harsha Walia. Suchitra Vijayan was born and raised in Madras, India. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, GQ, the Boston Review, the Hindu and Foreign Policy, and she has appeared on NBC News. A barrister by training, she previously worked for the United Nations war crimes tribunals in Yugoslavia and Rwanda before co-founding the Resettlement Legal Aid Project in Cairo, which gives legal aid to Iraqi refugees. She's an award-winning photographer. Some of her work you see in her new book and in many other places, the founder and the executive director of the Polis Project, a hybrid research and journalism organization. She currently lives in New York and is joining us from New York now. And she's also the recent author of Midnight's Borders, A People's History of Modern India. We're also joined today by Harsha Walia, who's the award-winning author of In Doing Border Imperialism, which published in 2013, and most recently, Border and Rule. Trained in law, she is a community organizer and campaigner in migrant justice, anti-capitalist feminist, and anti-imperialist movements, which you also see in her book, including No One is Illegal and Women's Memorial March Committee. I wanted to kick off today's conversation with these two scholars and writers and activists by asking them what it meant to write in the midst of a global pandemic. Both of these two books were finished, and you see that in the writing itself in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, where we saw the world remade by border making in new and old ways. I remember in the early parts of the pandemic, the world was closing itself off to Americans because of the high rates of um, COVID that was uh, spreading through the nation here. But then we're also now in a moment where the world has kind of closed itself to, to uh, India and Indians who are moving throughout the world. So there's almost been a foreclosure in different parts of the world in different moments of time and a heightening of, of border making. So for the two of you, I know that you touch upon this in, in your books a little bit, but what did it really mean to write and publish in this specific moment of time? Oh, am I back? 
this might happen to anyone joining in. Um, let me just first say how delighted and honored I am to be in conversation with both of you. Thank you to Haymarket and Melville for convening us. Um, and just a huge congratulations to Suchitra on the release of your new book. We're all so excited. Um, I'm on the territories of the Coast Salish people. I'm on the lands of the Musqueam, the Tsleil-Waututh, and the Squamish nations. And these are nations who have never given up their jurisdiction or their sovereignty on these territories. And in thinking about, you know, border making and border transgressing and bordering regimes, really, um, you know, for me, how how pivotal it is to situate that conversation in the historic and ongoing context of settler colonialism, right? That settler colonialism was amongst other things, a genocidal project, including bordering regimes of reserves and reservations um, intended to capture and contain diverse indigenous nations. Um, and so I offer that not simply as an acknowledgement, but really as an interconnectedness in this conversation and a foundational reality uh, of the conversation that we're, we're engaging in. Um, in, in terms of, uh, writing this book in the pandemic, um, I should say I was finishing the book during the pandemic. Um, and, uh, you know, really, as you noted, the pandemic really becoming the latest kind of weaponization as crises often are to further secure borders. Right. Um, and perhaps the last time that we saw this in such an intense way was right after 9-11, as we know, um, where the war on terror or the war of terror became a mass project, a never-ending project and regime of violence and terror and border securitization. And certainly now with COVID, where literally, you know, movement has become stigmatized, right? Uh, where movement has become conflated with um, the spread of disease, we see that as a pretext for all of the, the contradictions of bordering regime, which is capitalism, luxury travel, as we know, you know, every state has these so-called scandals where politicians and business people continue to travel, um, have access to now, you know, variations of vaccine passports, while most of the world is plunged in vaccine apartheid. Um, and also we see the contradictions where, uh, on the one hand, borders are shut down to refugees and asylum seekers and movements from particular countries where while certain states continue to expel, right, continue to deport refugees and migrants. You know, in Guatemala, in the early days of the pandemic, approximately 20% of COVID cases um, were traced back to deportation flights from the United States, right? So on the one hand, countries like the U.S. are shutting down their borders to migrants and refugees. And, you know, here the U.S. is not alone. Hundreds of countries have shut down their borders to migrants and refugees while maintaining deportation flights out, expelling people, um, and while allowing, you know, cheapened temporary migrant workers to continue to come in and maintain food supply chains. Um, so really, you know, we, we see that the pandemic has become, I think, yet another fault line uh, in a deeply unequal world as we already know it. And of course, exacerbated many forms of systemic racism, of caste, of Islamophobia, of anti-Asian racism, you know, depending on, on what the context is around the world, um, but really deepened um, those forms of, of othering and oppression. Thank you so much. I just want to thank, I just want to start by thanking um, Hardeep and Harsha for this, um, especially Harsha's work, uh, the earlier works that have been so foundational to so many of us thinking through not only what scholarship needs, but also what um, 
activism means and what are the ways in which we can reimagine a radical future. Um, I want to start, before I go any further, I want to make um, the land acknowledgement. I'm speaking from the ancestral Lenape homelands and recognizing the long-standing significance of these lands to the Lenape nations, both past and present. And as Arsha said, I think it's absolutely important for us to understand what this acknowledgement means because the settler colonial project is still um, alive and well, um, claiming more lands, claiming more people. Um, and I think it's important for us. It's important that we start these conversations with an acknowledgement. Um, now, coming to the question, um, you know, it was it's just been. I, I was I, mean, I was talking about this to you before the book kind of fell apart um, just before I was coming close to writing it. Um, end of the year in, in, in India, two legislations, the CAA and an RC were passed, which which were met with protests, which was also met with immense violence. And a lot of the people who were part of the book um, no longer wanted to be a part of the book. Um, so much had to be rewritten. It sometimes felt that eight years of work and then um, a new history was being uh, written and rewritten. Article 370 had been um, revoked, which meant that Kashmir, um, the status of Kashmir also changed. Um, and I came back, uh, when I came back from India, um, I was there during the protests, but I was also there the night students were attacked in JNU. And when as soon as I came back, the February 23rd violence happened that unleashed another genocidal violence in the streets of Delhi. And soon after, as I was writing and finishing this book, the pandemic opened here and New York was the epicenter of the pandemic. Um, and so uh, it, it, as someone who who's migrated and who's had multiple homes and continues to have multiple homes, and it's, it's been hard to think through how one thinks about the people you're writing about um, back home, but here. But also increasingly you saw the George Floyd protests. So in some ways history was happening in front of us as it felt like um, there was a certain sense of urgency. So I was responding to that moment. And I think a lot of the writing was also thinking about what does it mean, this moment mean for our futures? And now that the book is out, it's, it's incredibly hard to discuss a book in the middle of a pandemic, especially when in India right now, um, the official estimates say that over 300,000 people have died, but now the recent numbers can be much higher. So I think the sense of you're trying to make sense of the present, but also realizing that the present is overwhelming. That for us to write this history, we not only have to be morally, politically astute, but we also need to constantly question our own place of where we are writing from. Um, so I think I, I, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Thank you both for that. I'm also wondering, Suchitra, what it means for you to be writing for multiple audiences. I know that the book has now been published in a series of different countries and has kind of take, taken different modes. You're able to include certain things in certain books and not in others. So what has that meant for you as an author of both the people's history, but also border making? Um, you know, I wrote this book um, so two things became very important to me. I wrote this book knowing that um, the book will have consequences. The book had, uh, the India book had a legal edit while the US booked in because in India, um, publishing itself has become so precarious that um, we have journalists being picked up for tweets, journalists being arrested on the way to report. Um, 
So one thing that I was very sure is that I wanted to protect the people who are in the book. I wrote a book as honestly as I could. It's researched, it's cited. Um, I had wonderful editors who supported me. It was important for me that I used a certain language. It was important for me that I used Indian administered Kashmir. That was a battle that I fought. And I, I also had editors who fought that battle for me. Um, but more importantly, the people in the book had to be protected. So that was the most important thing. Um, the second thing was that my audience, I wasn't writing for um, an audience that was, um, I, I didn't want to be, it's very easy for many of us to become eloquent voices of an empire. I didn't want to explain my people, my history. When I say my, I'm not just talking within the national boundaries. I'm talking about the larger histories of migration that we are all part of. I didn't want to be an interpreter. I didn't want to explain. I didn't want to be the native informant. And it's very easy for many of us who write these books for other other audiences. Um, and that was very important for me. And I wrote this book believing that anybody who reads this book um, who comes from these histories of exile and migration, who continue to question those things, deal with it. And that's how I thought about this book and I wrote about this. Because eventually your job as a writer is to make sense of the social reality. And you also face the consequences for it. And you should face the consequences for it. Um, good, bad, um, and ugly. But again, as I said, the people in the book and protecting them became the most important thing. And I think, luckily, I had my editors who were um, collaborators in the project, in, in that project of making sure that that happened. On that note, I really, one of the things that I was very taken aback when reading these books is how similar and how different they both are. I mean, both of these books are so powerfully about border making and people and how they experience those borders, but they're also both very evocative histories of the state. And in your case, Harsha, very much of a series of entangled global forces. And so I wanted to ask you both to speak a little bit about how you made decisions on how you would write a history of borders and state making and, and imperialism really. We're going to look at each other for a while. <laughs> Who's going to go? <laughs> Thank you for that, that question, Hardik. Um, you know, I guess um, in, in, in that way, my, um, my work is certainly uh, very much less ambitious than Suchitra's in um, not necessarily attempting to write a history, which her work does so well, um, but more just trying to weave threads, if you will. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, claim my work uh, as having been deep in the archives in that way, um, which of course is invaluable work for all of us, uh, but primarily coming from the perspective of having organized for a really long time in a very particular context. Um, and when I wrote my first book, uh, I had the privilege of traveling a lot. And a lot of what I would hear would be like, oh, you know, Canada's so great, right? Um, and it really was to speak back against that methodological nationalism, uh, which can, you know, happen in any context, but to really see, especially when it comes to border making, not, not limited to, but especially when it comes to border making, how systems travel, like they literally travel and have traveled in the context of empire. Um, and, you know, that was what I was interested in weaving together. Um, and in as much as it's historical, it was really to look at how oftentimes when we think of borders as, you know, anti-migrant technologies, um, what that tends to do is often erase or obscure how they're also foundationally 
racist and exclusionary in other ways as well. So, for example, the U.S.-Mexico border is not just anti-migrant. It's foundation through anti-indigenous and anti-blackside. Um, as one example, right? So tracing that history to understand that in order for a border to be anti-migrant, it's founded in other kinds of state violences. Um, so that really was the work that I was hoping to do and really to have an internationalist um, an internationalist lens, right? Also writing this book at a time um, in the context of growing Hindutva forces, um, of the ongoing occupation of Kashmir, of the NRC um, and, you know, and more and the statelessness, the crisis of statelessness that's erupting all across the world, um, but really concentrated in some ways in the, you know, the broader South Asian subcontinent, whether that's in India, whether that's in Myanmar, um, and looking at the similarities, which I think are, you know, increasingly on the rise, but I don't you know, think we pay enough attention to, for example, um, the ways in which you know, white nationalism, Zionism, and Hindutva are connected forces. Oftentimes, it may even seem contradictory, right? Um, and I think doing the work of thinking about um, thinking about these transnational forces through an internationalist lens. So, looking back in history, in some ways, but really, for me, it's uh, a bit more of a forward-looking book. Which, of course, history is always intended to instruct the present and the future. Um, so, I'm not trying to uh, you know suggest that books that are historical only live in the past. But really that my area of expertise and knowledge base was how can we draw on this work um, transnationally with an internationalist lens and how can we look at different places that have very similar, not same, but similar methods of state violence that are that are transported literally that literally migrate. I think for me, the experience was the other way around. Um because initially the project started, um, I just come back from Afghanistan and there were certain things that I was looking at. Um, initially, this was meant to be a visual project. Um, but then the more I traveled, it became very clear that this was not going to be a visual project. There had to be certain kind of a text and explanation that accompanied that. And I remember writing the first um, draft of the book proposal or some sense of what this book would be. And it, it was, I was hiding behind a very specific kind of academic language, very theoretical, um, very obtuse. And I remember uh, when I took it to my friends, some of them said, so Chitra, why are you hiding behind the language of academia? Like, this doesn't have to be this way. And it took me um, a while to understand why. And again, hiding behind, um, excuse me, there's just a lot of background noise, but um, it became very clear to me that I was hiding behind academic um, language or the obtuse sentences, not because um, that was how I was trained, it was because I was refusing to name the beast. I was refusing to acknowledge that certain things were happening and perhaps I wasn't uh, challenging them head on. But the more I wrote and the moment I kind of said, no, this is not what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to, this is what's going to be about the people and their histories. But eventually it is about finding out ways for us to understand that we learn from these stories, not just as stories, because often it's easy to say, it is easy to write a story of dispossession and leave it at that, and then not link into the larger structures of oppression. It is easy to say, oh my God, look what happened to these poor people. 
but refused to not highlight the structural historic reasons behind why this was happening. The more I wrote, the stories themselves became so heavy that the language had to be light. Um, initially, the book had... Um, I had scrapbooks, I had uh, newspaper cuttings. I wanted this to be like a scrapbook. And one of the things, and I'm glad my editor said this, is like, Suchitra, the book is so heavy already. Keep it as light as possible. There was an entire section on the methodology of the people's history where I was trying to explain that how this is not Zin's people's history because for Zin, the maps of belonging comes later. But for me, it starts with understanding that people here already are making their own maps uh, beyond territorial sovereignties. They already have. And then I took it all out because I really didn't want to be professorial. I didn't want to preach. I just wanted to lay out as simply and easily as possible, what is it that I was trying to be, be very specific. Um, and I think those are the things that really um, um, affected the way I wrote. And of course, being in Kashmir, um, coming back, um, I also became a mother in the process of writing the story. And I think that also had a very specific political um, effect on me in terms of what it meant to tell a story of the present, but also with the fact that we are looking at a future that has to be different. Um, so those were the things I would say affected the ways in which I thought about this book. But yeah, so yeah, <laughs> so yes, definitely the idea being for someone to pick up the book and read it and not feel that they have to look for explanations. They didn't have to, for example, the state of exception doesn't appear here. There's no Foucault, there is no uh, state formation. There is no, it, it, it's not that those things didn't go into it. It's simply that, um, we really need to make language accessible. And I think that was very important for me. Yeah, I, I guess you raise a very important point that it's ironic to be writing a people's history that becomes inaccessible to, uh, quote unquote, the people. Before we transition to another question, I actually wanted to pick up on something you ended with, which is the theme of motherhood. You talk about that in your book. And, and Harsha, I remember you talking about um, uh, you know, being a mother in the early part uh, of your book as well, Border and Rule. So I, I do want to ask you both, especially in this era where I feel like more women of color who are parents are really talking about the way in which motherhood informs uh, both their writing, but also their activism, the way in which they see the future and the present. So can I have you two just speak about, um, you know, how motherhood has uh, change the way you might write and approach your work, but also your activism? Thank you for that question. These questions are so deep, deep. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, don't apologize. Don't apologize. Um, they just, uh, they're, they're forcing me to, to turn inwards. So thank you. Um, I'd say, you know, um, I guess I'll just, I'll start by saying, because oftentimes I think, uh, I, I don't take this in any way in terms of where this conversation is going, but just for the, the sake of clarity, um, I do want to be clear that I think motherhood can mean very many different things. And I think, you know, oftentimes even in the left, there can be an essentialization of mothering um, that really, of course, amongst other things, becomes deeply transphobic and heteronormative and more. Um, and so, you know, just wanting to be clear that I think mothering is is so expansive um, and also that mothering comes you know, is entangled in many histories for different people, right? That in some contexts, uh, mothering under occupation is literally an act of resistance. 
Um, and in other contexts, mothering is, you know, unnecessarily glamorized. And, you know, you have the suburban middle class mom who, you know, uh, is just overly fixated on mothering as a function of life. And so it really is a spectrum. Um, and so I'm, I'm cautious of how loaded that can be and also our own complicated relationships, be they what they may, um, with respect to parenting. Um, I think for me, I'm, I'm fairly, uh, I'm fairly ambivalent about my own mothering. And that really comes in the context having spent most of my adult time in a neighborhood where child apprehension is a daily reality for most of the people that I work with. Um, and so I'm ambivalent about it in the sense that I just, I, I see the, I see the theft of mothering for so many people that I, um, you know, I, it, it just affects me in a different way. And speaking about it is not something that I want to do too much in those contexts. Um, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's a shitty reality that mothering is often a privilege, right? Given the state of genocidal violence in the world for many people. Um, so I'd say, you know, and that's been, I, I had a child in that context. Um, and that's influenced how I've mothered and how I've parented. Um, I also had a very ambivalent birthing process, so I don't have anything attached to that. Um, the only thing that I can say really about doing this work as a mother, um, is twofold. One is just the sheer discipline that's needed, like the time management that's needed. Uh, it comes down to that for me. Um, you know, it's one more thing to multitask in a good way. And the other is it's really honed my skills and, you know, I'm still learning, but how to communicate in a different way, because, um, you know, not, you know, part of it, of course, in terms of accessibility, like how to communicate to children, the function of violence and what it means in their lives and what they have to bear witness to and how they must act. Um, but also to your point, Suchitra, about particularly children, like being aware of not overloading them with the immensity of the world, like leaving them with something concrete, something hopeful. It's something we want to do with everybody, but with children, you literally see it on their face, right? You you feel like you can't overload them with that, that joy and that you're literally robbing them of, of their childhood and their joy and their laughter. Um, and so for me, uh, just being around children in general, mothering aside, spending more time with, with young people and children, um, has really honed my skills around, um, the skill of optimism, but realistic optimism, not the world is okay, but you know, here's the burden that we have to bear and how do we take it on together? And what are the possibilities of a different future? Um, and especially in a world that of course is at the brink of climate catastrophe, right? Like what that means. And especially because young people tend to be, um, so close to animal, the animal world. Um, so holding all of that, I think was the way that that changed me and, you know, apologies for that big disclaimer. But for me, it comes with all of that because I think uh, mothering is, you know, it's, it's complicated for people. And I, I don't presume to know what folks listening in, what their relationship to that may be. No, I, I think for me, it was, um, I should put it so eloquently, because for me, for the longest of time, I, I didn't want to be a mother. Um, I had chosen not to be a mother. Um, and then I decided to have a child as a result of something else, it, it was a moment where I, I, I didn't know. I, I didn't know what it meant. Um, I definitely did not feel, um, I did not feel the way many of the other women that I knew felt about motherhood. For me, it felt, it was about so many other things. Um, 
So I think in some ways the struggle of what it meant to be a mother, the idea of education, the idea of what it meant to raise another political being, I felt I did not know. Um, and I think also not knowing is something that I don't think we acknowledge enough. Um, having said that, I think one of the things that's very important for me to write um, as a young lawyer, one of the things that I did was I, I worked with a lot of unaccompanied minors. And again, um, it's it's what Arsha said. It's like mothering is is not it's not easy. These were children who were fleeing violence and war, but these were also children who whose childhood was stolen away from them. And again, uh, one often feels that you can become uh, the purveyors of other people's misery and grief. And also, it was very important for me to be very specific about the language. But for me, the most important thing that motherhood taught me or I had to teach myself was to teach myself the radical hope is a discipline, that it's a practice. Like just as you prepare for, I prepared for motherhood because I didn't know what that meant. It, it meant my language, my body, everything had to change, but also every day you had to get up and train yourself to be hopeful. You had to train yourself to speak a certain way. You had to make um, also children cost resources. Right. Um, it's it's an it's a thing that people don't talk about. The act of writing costs resources. The act of writing while being a mother costs resources. Um, and I think I became acutely aware of my own privileges first, that allowed me to do some of this. Um, and I think that reflected my life. I think a lot of it was just unlearning and learning. Um, and I'm 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 very very cognizant of that. There are things that I would have taken. I would have been cavalier with in terms of language. Um, in my 20s that I no longer am because I think it's a process. Um, yeah, so I think that is, it's very important for us to be very specific about what means and, and, it, and the intention I think is very important. One of the, just listening to you both, um, one of the things you both make me think so much about is sort of the wide breadth of feminist praxis. Like it's not just about mothering in a single way. But I mean, Harsha, in your work, you really also talk about the matriarchs, the indigenous matriarchs in your neighborhood that you've learned so much from, right? And um, so Chitra, all the women in your in your book that come out that you're learning from and whose stories that you're, you're writing, right? It's almost as if um, both the nexus of writing and practice comes out of all of these, all of these formulations. And children are integral to this too, right? Um, both of you write so much about the way in which border making regimes impact children, um, whether it's in in South Asia or whether it's across the globe, right? And I think that this is kind of a newer topic folks are talking about now, and especially North America when it comes to uh, the caravans, the quote unquote caravans that have come up um, from Central and South America over the last decade and even longer, really. Um, but it's not something that's in the kind of popular imaginary when we think about border regimes. Um, I did want to talk about the carcerality of the border space. One of the things that I found so evocative about both of your writing, and this is both in the kind of granular way that Suchitra, you do in your writing, where you see like as you're moving across each kind of border space of, of India, you see the terrain of carcerality. And by this, I'm actually like not just talking about the people that make the border in terms of the state, but I'm actually talking about the infrastructure that does too, right? The floodlights, the walls, the fencing, um, the dogs, the um, the kind of 
uh, trucks that state officials are using the boats, because both of you talk about how integral the sea is in your work, which I was um, both excited and not excited to see. It's one thing that's spoken about less and kind of work on border making, but it's become so integral to the way in which the, the world is policed and bordered, right? So um, writing about these spaces is one difficult, but I, I so Chitra, if it, it would be nice to hear you reflect on what it meant to write about these spaces, um, both kind of as someone who bears witness to them as you're traveling, but also as someone who's writing about the way in which other people are um, moving through them on a daily basis, right? You're literally living and moving with people who are residing on the border. And Harsha, I want to pose that question to you as well, right? What does it mean to be active in this kind of work, right? And to write about these very kind of carceral spaces and the way people have lived through them. And I mean, there's so many vignettes from your book that made me shudder when I read them, particularly at the beginning of um, your chapters, um, people being dragged by um, border patrol officials and their SUVs, individuals being left at sea and bodies washing up on the shoreline. I mean, none of these images go away, right? And they be and they have been kind of in the headlines in one way or another, but they they wash away, right? But these carceral spaces really, really live on. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll go first. I think one thing that I want to be very specific about was that, in terms of writing. Um, I, I write about in the beginning of the book is that I really wanted to not do what most nonfiction does. I didn't want to, I wasn't bearing witness. I wasn't giving voice to the voices. It was so important for me to not be in the, you know, the, the location where um, I very specifically say that the people who appear in the book are eloquent, articulate um, uh, storytellers of their own destiny. So in that sense, the function of these stories and encounters is not to bear witness or or speak for the voiceless. It is to say that these are people who have lived, fought, survived, and sometimes not survived. And what are the what are the lessons that we can learn about our own way of living? I think that really informed the ways in which I was thinking about this. And also, it became very clear that carceral systems borrow from each other. And they mutate and they they expand and they they contract and they take spaces. Um, and I think one thing that oppression does and violence does really well is it learns from each other and, and gets better. So carceral spaces, um, and I think it's very important to locate our own privileges of who gets to write about the carceral system. I know that now we have a lot of these prison writing programs, but even then it's very clear to be specific about what these carceral systems means. Second thing is to be very cognizant of the fact that history and memory is so local. While there can be, there are, and there are global connections, there are, there's a thread that connects Attica to Abu Ghraib. There's a thread that connects um, carceral systems across various borders, but history and memory is so specific and local and so important for us to understand that, that moment. Um, but, the second thing of all of this is also the capacity for me to move. Um, in the beginning of the book, I talk about the moment in which um, both me and my clients are both um, in, in Cairo for the longest of time. Um, I've always had an Indian passport, which meant that, um, you know, um, 
when I was in Cairo, um, every other lawyer who was working with refugee legal aid was white European for the movement wasn't difficult. Finding a house wasn't difficult. Um, I, on the other hand, an Indian passport would have to go and renew my things. You know, so both me and my refugee clients would be at the Mogama every month. And there's a certain kind of indignity that is meted out to you as also as a way to discipline and punish who you are. But end of the day, reality is that I still had a passport, which meant that I could still decide the time of my departure and arrival. And I think that is itself shows you how deeply unequal the world is. It's racial capitalism that unmakes, makes and unmakes the world and it makes us all unequal. While I did not want to be, and I didn't, I didn't, and I hope I've done that in this book, not bear witness, not everybody gets to also move through these spaces. Um, I think these were the three things that were very crucial for me in terms of writing about it. And again, as I said, we need to consistently hold the structures accountable. We need to name the beast. We need to specifically say the reasons. Uh, it's very easy. There's an entire genre of um, writing that is called humanitarian storytelling, which I often find really baffling. Often they will tell you a story of how a village in Senegal is completely destroyed by um, because the, there's, there's no fish left to fish. But the story would then be funded by the same European Union fund and, and the same European Union policies that have created mass indiscriminate fishing in these oceans is the reason why entire livelihoods in the Senegalese coast is being now destroyed. Right. So it's easy for you to tell these stories and not implicate the powerful. Um, and I think that was very important within the carceral system. Uh, we really need to consistently. That's why language becomes very important to use the language, be specific, um, but also um, speak about these stories, not as just stories, but connect them to the larger structures. Thank you for that. Um, I'd say for me, and to, to echo a lot of what uh, Suchitra has already said so eloquently, um, I start off the book very clearly saying that my intent is, is not in any way actually to focus on the stories of migrants and refugees um, precisely for those reasons, is that there is entire stories constantly written that really focuses um, on the narratives of migrants and refugees, right? Um, and in oftentimes that's in mainstream media. And as you noted, hardly by you know there's the flashing news stories, and then they wash away. They 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 recede from memory. Um, and also because so much of it, particularly when it comes to migrants and refugees, is so deeply mired in humanitarian imperialism. Um, you know, and with, you know, feed the child, sponsor the refugee in the camp, like that's really so much of migrant and refugee work and writing, not trying to homogenize. There's lots of, you know, extraordinary exceptions to that. Um, but for me, it really was uh, my intent and that I, you know, hope was clear is that I really wanted to shift the gaze away from the individual subjectivities of migrants and refugees, also because I'm in no place to capture that varied experiences. Like they are so different. Um, people's stories are different. People lived experiences are different. People are literally, you know, people speaking different languages. Um, but it was to focus on how the state has created the category of migrant and refugee, right? Like this, this idea of migrant and refugee and undocumented and immigrant and asylum seeker that we all use and that we've all normalized. But to really take some steps back and say, you know, how did this category even come to be created? It can only exist in relationship to the border. It only exists in relationship to the nation state. It only exists in relationship 
to power structures, right? Um, if you have, if there are no borders, you don't have migration, you just have mobility, right? And so for me, it was to really interrogate those structures, um, the structures that even create categories of migrant. And of course, here, those discrepancies are obvious, right? People who move on planes with luxury, who, you know, own yachts, who go on cruises, who have expats visas are, of course, not captured nor intended to be captured in the category of migrant and refugee. Right. Those are that's luxury travel. That's business travel, etc. So to really look at how migration as a category has nothing to do with movement or mobility and everything to do with state violence, racial capitalism. And I think the corollary of racial capitalism being racial citizenship. And so um, that for me uh, was the was the intention of, of the work was to inter- interrogate, as Suchitra has put, those systems, those broader forces. And secondarily, kind of specific within that is to inter- interrogate the systems of displacement. <laughs> so one of the arguments that I make in the book, um, and, you know, of course, others have made that as well, is that, you know, we don't have a migration crisis. We have an immobility crisis, right? People are actually not able to move. Um, and that what we're facing is mass immobilization and displacement, Right. That people are being forced out of their homes. People are not able to live in their homes. Their land is being extracted. The labor is being extracted. Their land is being devastated. Their land is being bombed. Uh, You know, it's being polluted. All of those different things so that it's so important to think about um, the freedom to move as a corollary to the freedom to stay. And so what my work also intends to do, and, and again, you know, not alone in this, Um, is to situate the work of migration alongside the work of fighting displacement, because oftentimes those are to weave some of that together. Um, And, you know, how important it is to to think about those root causes of displacement, especially depending on where we're located. And as Suchitra mentioned, like what our privileges in that are, right? So in certain places uh, in the world where it becomes very easy to say, oh, that's a problem over there, right? Like refugees are created over there without thinking about the complicity um, and how we are bound up in these violences in a deeply global way. Um, and, you know, one example that I, I would give, because I think it's it's so salient right now, is, you know, we're in the, in the midst of ongoing escalation in Palestine, right? And Israeli apartheid and Israel's occupation of Palestine. And there's so much humanitarian work. I mean, Onarwa you know, works with Palestinian refugees, but will never take a position against Israeli apartheid or Zionism or the occupation of Palestine, right? So the fact that so much refugee work, if you will, liberal humanitarian refugee work can exist as a kind of benevolent charity humanitarian project that will never implicate imperialism, that will never implicate the state, that will never implicate, you know, the Indian occupation of Kashmir, for example. Um, so those are, you know, those were also reasons um, for me in, in writing this work and thinking about migrant and refugee um, and to ask that deeper question of how do migrants and refugees even come to be and how are we implicated in that creation, right? What are the forces that we need to be thinking about um, and to think about the freedom to move and the freedom to stay as corollaries of each other and not, again, you know, focusing on individual stories, not because they're not important, um, but to think transnationally and internationally and and think about those those webs of violence and how we may be situated within those. Yes, I, I think it's so important that you pointed that out. I, I was before we logged on to this uh, conversation. I was talking to Citra about how the two of you have 
you know, similarities in the sense that you're both writing about borders in the state, but the approach is very different, right? The actual um, writing process of how you write write um, or how you wrote your books is very different. But one of the things that you see that serves as a constellation in both pieces of writing is you do see histories of the state interlaid in so many ways, right? I think, Harsha, you're very explicit in your writing about the kinds of global constellations that we see coming together, um, whether it's um, indigenous uh, disposition, dispossession, whether it's um, a larger constellation of anti-Blackness, whether it's capitalism at its local or global level, um, or whether it's these, you know, larger xenophobic forces that you might see when you're talking about um, uh, different kinds of supremacy, right, racial and religious and otherwise. Um, so, Chitra, I wanted to see if you might want to add a little bit to Harsha's um, comments on what I would just take from her book and say, which um, is manufacturing a crisis, right? I think at some point um, it's it's called that in Border and Rule and the way in which uh, disposition, uh, dispossession and displacement play a critical role in that. I mean, so many of the um, chapters that you put forward are deeply um, moving in the sense. So I wanted to see if you wanted to add a few words. Do you want me to respond to, what specifically do you want me to? You can respond in any way. Okay, okay. But um, if if you want to be more specific and it's really your choice, you know, this idea of a manufactured crisis, we often hear this in so many places, right? There's an immigration crisis at the US-Mexico border. There's a crisis in in Kashmir. Right. I think this is where we go back to intentionality and language, right? Um, One of the things that I I left out in the book um, was, I remember um, it goes back to some of the things that Harsh has spoken about, right? About the liberal humanitarian framework that is actually is not different. It does not bring help, but what it really does is it's, it's inexplicably link to the bottom making process, the crisis creation process. Um, and I had this because I had a front row seat uh, because for two years is what I did. I I did refugee petitions. I And when you start, you know, there's this process called uh, the RSD. Um, and, and then what you're really doing is you're getting people who have fled war and violence to come and tell you their story with as much precision and detail and data and facts and time. And there's a template that you use. You say, you know, when did you leave? What happened? Do you remember this? How many police officers came to pick up your father today? You know, and you're constantly asking people who flood everything to give you a credible story that could be sold within the structures which have no correlation to uh, the reality on the ground to decide if someone is a uh, belongs to a group. Um, or a social group that is being persecuted. The very structure of deciding when someone is a refugee or an asylum seeker or deserves protection is based on these laws and rules that are untenable, that have no reflection on reality. And yet we continue to use these frameworks. Uh, So why is it? There have been so many instances in which the same family, uh, two of them would get the refugee status, others wouldn't. In some countries, um, 
what it really was, was, was a checkerboard where you could pick and choose. You could, you know, a country could go and pick and choose from the refugee convention what they would want. You could give them right to stay, but no right to education. You could give someone right to stay in education, but refusal to work. Um, so what you're really seeing is putting people who've gone through some of the worst things, uh, a constant petition to justify their humanity. So the crisis in some ways is not only manufactured, um, we've manufactured statelessness, but the crisis in some ways is um, a way to hold and maintain racial hierarchies. Um, and I think that is something that we really need to understand. Even another thing, one thing that is really interesting for me is I was I, I kind of went back and opened up all the founding documents that I knew so intimately, whether it's the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. As an international lawyer, this is what you're taught. You're taught the codes, the conventions. And what's really interesting is that um, the Universal Charter, the, the Universal Declaration says that every person has a right to a state. Right. So if every person has a right to a state, what does statelessness mean in, in a world where you have organizations like the UN? So what you're really seeing is that, um, and also the fact that we've linked human dignity to citizenship rights that is then linked to a state, right? Somehow freedom that is you know um, inalienable is now linked to a state that decides whether you deserve the dignity and freedom or not. And the fact that for so many of us, um, these things are taken for granted. That we think uh, the language of calling people illegal, like no human is illegal. And yet we have to make these proclamations to you know, reclaim, reclaim a space. Um, so for me, I think that's very important for us to understand that the intentionality, the language, the use. Um, and it's very specific. The state is very, very specific with the use of language. And that then creates Many multiple crises. So the my, the crisis of statelessness, uh, the the crisis of migration, uh, are all linked. Um, it's not just one. And I think that is very important for us to. I, I know it sounds it's it sounds so simple, and yet we are constant. That's another part, right? Um, I find is that the the capacity of of the state and the capacity of these uh, systems to consistently expect you to repeat the same thing over and over again. Um, same thing with the stories, right? The stories that the the, the migrants or the refugees, uh, the asylum seekers are have forced to tell over and over again. Um, so I think I'll, I'll, for me, those are the kind of things that I think we should continue to think about, speak about, um, but also think about more sophisticated ways to explain to people. When I say sophisticated, not in terms of language, but ways for us to get this out to a larger um, group. Yeah, one of the questions that um, an audience member has asked is the way in which your own legal background informs your work. And, you know, to add to that question, I was just thinking about, you know, a corollary to that, which is the way in which legal claims making on the state kind of requires that you be active in the state legal system. And sometimes that in itself can um, is not a system one would want to participate in. Right. Even the act of claiming citizenship or being designated as citizenship, a citizen is not something all people want. Uh, so, you know, it's a two part question, right? One is how does your own legal background inform the kind of work that you do? But also, how do you see the work of the law in the kinds of uh, quote unquote crises that we're seeing in different ways? And my dog has also entered the room just to let you all know. <laughs> I think Arsha should go first. I want to hear what Harsha says. I want to hear Harsha first. Arsha should go first. 
sure. And I should say thank you so much for saying my name. <laughs> I'm used to hear, hearing my name pronounced um, incorrectly all the time, myself included. So it's a joy to hear it. <laughs> um, I think uh, I had a, uh, I never practiced law um, and I entered law school in a very funny way um, after being a community organizer and working, there was this very specific kind of community legal scholar program that I did. Um, and so my background in law has zero influence, to be honest. Um, and I know that might seem flippant, but it really, it didn't. Um, and most of what I was doing was prior to me getting a law degree and I never learned anything about immigration law and didn't take a single class in that. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say my legal background has, has, um, influenced me, but certainly, you know, most people who are organizing or in relationship to the state have to deal with the law, right? Whether or not you're a lawyer, uh, you know, if you're a jailhouse lawyer, if you're fighting uh, an eviction, if you're, you know, fighting a child apprehension, if you're facing deportation, you get versed with the law, whether or not you're a lawyer. Um, and I think in that way, what that really taught me, um, you know, which I think is probably evident to most of us, which is that the, the legal claim to neutrality is bullshit. <laughs> the law is, a, you know, is a complete, is a pillar of power, um, that there is no reforming the law in the same way that we can't reform other systems. Like, you know, when we talk about that there, you know, that we can't reform carceral systems, we also can't reform the law as we know it, because it's completely embedded in the state. It's intended to maintain power, even as much as you can kind of tweak it, um, you know, it also entrenches the relationship of the state to capital, um, just everything about it. But I think it's one of those last bastions that people still hold on to where there's a possibility. Um, and, you know, that's not to say we don't engage with the law, right? Because we engage with the world, we engage with the world as it is. And so, you know, it may be a harm reduction strategy. There may be strategic reasons. Um, there's often, of course, you know, as you pointed out, in as much as citizenship is hollow and it's state defined, um, you're not going to tell someone who's undocumented not to fight for citizenship, right? Like that makes no sense. Um, and so I think, you know, to me, the, the relationship of how one struggles with the law and immigration is similar to a lot of other struggles, um, which is that it's ultimately a movement question, right? Of like in the fight for a world without borders, um, where we dismantle citizenship and also dismantle many other kinds of hierarchies and forms of apartheid and, you know, social segregation. Um, in the pathway to that, what are the steps we need to take in order to get there, right? So like thinking about um, what are the steps that take us towards that vision of liberation and what are the steps that are regressive? Um, and in as much as I don't believe ultimately in citizenship, I think one of the arguments that we can engage with through the law is constantly expanding the category of citizenship, right? Like, and that idea of, you know, Suchitra, as you said, no human is illegal, is to refuse those differentiations of who's deserving and who's not, is to refuse the idea of like citizenship only for some. And so I think one of the ways in which we fight for that is struggles like status for all people, amnesty for all people, status on landing, you know, labor rights for everybody, regardless of citizenship, vaccines for all. Um, those are the ways in which I think um, struggles for law or policy um, can expand the terrain of liberation without getting caught up in it, right? Without without thinking that that's the end goal, but that it's a stepping stone in dismantling that. Um, and the other thing that I'd say is, you know, again, just emphasizing that the struggle to dismantle 
um, borders and a politics of no borders can't be separated from other social struggles. Like sometimes the site of the border itself um, becomes a terrain of struggle and that really borders are multiplying, right? Like bordering regimes are not just at the nation state. They multiply. Even if you're a citizen, there's all kinds of other social stratifications and hierarchies and power structures that don't, that mean you are not an equal citizen. Um, and, and in that way, I think it's, um, it's so important to dismantle regimes where they exist, not only at the site of the nation state, but in all the ways that it multiplies and that that is part of the legal struggle, right? Like having that interconnected vision, um, which often the law teaches us against, right? Like the law is very much about particular areas of the law and um, winning things <laughs> in the law and incremental change. And I think people who are trained in the law really have to think against that, right? To, to do a lot of work to think against that. Yeah. Um, yeah, the legal training. Um, I think a law school teaches you certain things. It taught me to read copious amounts of documents really effectively. I, I know that sounds, um, it sounds ridiculous, but I think, um, uh, you know, I, I was a child with learning disabilities. So for me, I have to train myself to read and write. That's something that's been a lifelong struggle. So one thing that law school did for me in terms of just learning is the capacity to look at a document and understand what the document is. It, it's a skill. Um, um, I think beyond that, I think I also had to unlearn a lot of law school can do to you. It is very similar to what academia does to a lot of brilliant minds is that um, it traps us into these spaces where we believe that um, it, it traps us into writing for an audience. As a lawyer, you write for a audience. Your audience is a judge. And depending on if you're a criminal litigator, then, you know, um, it traps you into writing for a narrower and narrower groups of people. Uh, as an academic, increasingly sadly so, that's what it does. It traps you into writing and speaking for a very select few audience and forgetting that um, ideas are expansive. And the only way ideas become real uh, within the liberatory framework is that they have to reach a larger audience. So having said that, I had to unlearn a lot of those things. But also what law taught me was that how easy it is to convince people that structures are more important than people. The idea that when I say structures, I'm not talking about the institutional structures, but how the process, the institutions meant to protect the people, the social contract of it all, right? So you're taught, law school teaches you that social contract is so important that sometimes it is okay to sacrifice a few people for the social contract. Um, and I think those are things that one has to unlearn. And I think the unlearning process was important. But now law itself, I think, is, is interesting. Um, societies are built on, on, on taxonomies. Societies are built on legal structures. Not because these legal structures are important, but because a functioning is regulated by them. And one of the things that, that I've really liked, um, I, I really like Kalyani Ramnath's work on how she looks at... Um, <laughs> excuse me, she looks at um, how the category of citizenship is created in these uh, societies before, um, in this in the early parts of the century, the ways in which legal documentation is, is, is works. Um, um, but increasingly, I think 
law is also used as a cover to so much. I think we have to be very specific in terms of what legal anthropology means. What 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 does a legal document mean? What does a person's position within within legality mean? Um, say for someone who is in in a space like Kashmir or Palestine, uh, in occupied spaces, um, you're petitioning the same structures put in place by the occupier, and yet you're petitioning these same structures. But what does the function of petitioning mean, right? Um, so I think it's always the space for us to understand what the function of law is, but more importantly, what is the function of law in response to various societies? Um, recently, someone asked, um, you're thinking about a borderless world, but you're also um, asking the state to do its work. Um, you know, in, in, this, is in, this was question was in relationship to COVID uh, in India and on what was happening with the 500,000 deaths. And the only way that I could think of that is that, yes, we need the liberatory framework and we need to think about what it means to think about a word that doesn't have borders. But also at this point in time, the only structure that perhaps could prevent the deaths of these people is a structure who has to be held accountable. You're often working through these um, spaces where it is not so easy to differentiate. As Arsha said, yes, you don't want, you want a very specific kind of framework, but also for someone who's undocumented, that piece of paper means something. Um, so those are the ways in which I'll think about it. But I think the law question has occupied me for a really long time. I don't I don't think the older I get, the less uh, convinced I've become about these frameworks, but it's still something that I'm thinking through. Since we're all still thinking with the law, I wanted to pick up on something you kind of ended with, and it links me back to something that comes quite early in the book, and I'm going to throw it out to both of you, and it's a very large question, so take it as you may. But so at some point, I think it's in the early chapters of your book, Suchitra, you talk about what the nation needs to perform, right? I think it's this... Um, this question about what is the state for? What is the nation for? And you kind of ended on that note in your comments now, right? So if I were to ask you to to reflect on that, right? What is, what is the function of the state or the nation? Um, does it have a role in the kinds of emancipatory frameworks that you envision for the future? Um, if so, why? Um, and feel free to give kind of like wide ranging um, I'd love to see this in the future questions to more kind of pragmatic notes uh, as well. No, I asked uh, the question I asked early in the book is what function does a nation state perform if it has consistently failed to provide the most basic of dignities to its people? Mm -hmm. One of the things that I did in my own writing is to shift away from the question of rights to the question of freedom and dignity, right? Because freedom and dignity should not be tried to rights. They are um, inalienable and everybody should have them, right? Uh, human dignity um, is not should not be tied to a rights framework. And one of the things I've realized is that especially, um, you know, I'm, I'm a child of a post-colony and the project of nationalism, even for those who dreamt of freedom outside the bounds of territorial sovereignty, um, I think nationalism restricted those visions. I think nationalism's one of the things that nationalism does is also restrict the idea of freedom. And we are in a place where I believe, and I strongly believe that there is change that's happening right now. That's, that's, a, that's a foot right now. And the question of a better equal world is not a question of utopia. That is the only future given climate change. 
given the ways in which racialized capitalism is destroying the world, the ways in which we need to do things now, um, and hierarchies are not going to be the solution. So we need to radically reimagine everything. We need to radically reimagine what it means to be a community, what it means to be a nation, what it means to dismantle the nation, what it means to think about citizenship, what it means to think about rights. And again, as I said, this is not a utopian project for the future. This is what has to be done now. I, as I ask in the book, what what standing army are you going to hold when water occupies, when climate change related, um, you know, when, when the ocean occupies land, what army can you put in place to defend your borders? Um, in that sense, I feel that we need to have, we need to specifically speak about the future. And that future um, needs to be, we need to be very specific about our intentions. The way the world exists right now cannot go on. The present cannot go on. So what are the solutions? Um, and I think that is how I look at it. Now, the nation as of today, I feel the nation's predominant function has become a way to restrict freedom. So when you look of the when when you think of the nation state within the framework, not as the rights giving body, but the institution that has consistently deprived people of their freedom and dignity, I think the ways for us to think about it just changes. Um, that's why for me the experiments that happened in Rojava when um, after the, the the Syrian war, um, that experiment people call the experiment failed, but that experiment is important. When people took over a piece of land in Seattle and called it the Seattle Autonomous Territory, um, I think that those experiments are important. In, in Jackson, when you know a group of black socialists and communists are getting together and trying to say that let's build our own community in places where the capitalism has just retreated, I think that's an experiment. The mutual aids that sprung up in New York City during COVID, those experiments of taking care of each other as a community, and I think all those experiments are already showing us that people are already reimagining themselves and constituting themselves differently. Um, and I think those are the things that I would I would love to learn from and think through um, in response to the nation state question. Thank you both. Um, I'll I'll be brief um, and just just echoing what Suchitra was talking about, which is that um, and you know again here I'll I'll say I'm not a I'm not a historian in in that way, and certainly you know different nation states have different functions in different parts of the world. Um, but one thing that has always struck me um, is a, a quote by Frantz Fanon. Uh, and one thing Frantz Fanon said, and you know, this is often, I think, one of his lesser known lessons, really. Um, and he said, national consciousness, which is not nationalism, is the only thing that will give us an international dimension. Um, and here, I think it's so important um, to think through the differences. And often, I think the conflations that we make between nationalism and the nation state, because a lot of struggles for liberation, of course, have a dimension of nationalism as they as they necessarily do. Um, but I think as Frantz Fanon teaches us and here, you know, really our inheritance, I think, from black liberation struggles, pan-Africanists included and beyond, um, to think through, you know, the difference between nationalist struggles and the nation state and how in its current form, the nation state really is a pillar of racial capitalism and of racial citizenship, right? Um, you know, in fact, nation states were literally carved out in the context of colonialism. We can't think of nation states outside 
of, you know, the last century and the legacy of imperialism. And so I think sometimes, you know, um, particularly as someone who does work around migrant justice and indigenous solidarity, I find I get a lot of questions around like, how do you reconcile those two? Um, often, which comes down to this question of the nation state, right? It's another way of, of, of thinking through nationalism in the nation state. And for me, the answer is like, well, they're actually not contradictory because as you put it, such that they're right, like the future is we need to think beyond the constraints of this moment which positions and suggests that certain relationships are inherently contradictory. I don't believe that they are. Um, because in assuming that they are contradictory, we're assuming that the nation state is the mediator of that relationship, which it doesn't need to be. Um, and certainly hasn't always been that way. So I think really, um, thinking beyond the bounds of the nation state. And again, here, very similar in thinking about what's a borderless world, it means we have to reimagine the world, right? We can't think about dismantling the nation state without also simultaneously thinking about dismantling racial capitalism, without dismantling the political North and the political South, right? That differentiation needs to cease to exist. White supremacy, Islamophobia, caste oppression, those all need to cease to exist in order for the nation state to cease to exist and to, to, you know, to not serve that function. Um, and so I think the kind of symbols of power that we often think of with the nation state and the border are bound up in other forms of violence. Um, and they have to be dismantled together, right? Like that really is the, that really is emancipation. Um, and here, you know, really thinking alongside black and indigenous struggles, um, whose relationship has always inherently been in contestation to the state, right? And the nation state form, um, and the ways in which the nation state restricts freedom, restricts mobility, restricts rights, intends to control, even in welfare states, so-called welfare states like Canada or their Nordic states, um, where, you know, even where it is a so-called rights giving state, um, you know, where that social contract is withering away, but, you know, still there, that often occludes the reality of colonialism. Right. And so, um, I think to, to think about the nation state has to be located in its, in its formation in the context of empire. Um, we can't think outside of that, um, because that really is the form in which it's been inherited in which it's continuously unequally access, right? Well, how do states even affirm, assert their sovereignty in the context of imperialism? It's a hollow, you know, it's a totally hollow and hollowed out um, sovereignty. So, um, you know, it's an, it's an unequal sovereignty always. Um, and so I think that is the crux of the question. And in that sense, you know, I'm a, I'm politically an anarchist, but I'm also not an anarchist that assumes all nation states have the same relationship to power in this world. Um, that, you know, nation states are differentiate, you know, differentiated by this, those histories of empire um, and that contestations of the nation state really um, are not new. Right. The, the nation states have been contested since they were imposed uh, on most peoples in this world. Um, and that, again, you know, drawing on fans and on, um, I do think there's a difference between nationalism and the nation state and national consciousness, depending on, again, who's in struggle and in what context. Um, you know, Hindu nationalism is fascism. Palestinian liberation is not, you know, and so I think those those distinctions matter. It's it's um, as someone who's trained as a historian, it's odd for me to constantly hear you say that you're not a historian, because when I read your work, it's so clear to me that um, the legacy of certain histories of imperialism and, you know, you hearken them again and again, they're just so vivid in your work. Right. And I'm not just talking about 
the early chapters of Border and Roll. Like even when you're talking about the present um, and you constantly remind us that um, the way in which we see border making regimes in the present are rooted in these histories of imperialism. Right. Like I it's it. As someone who's a historian, I just feel like there's so much history in your work, even though you kind of, uh, you know, said in the beginning that there that there isn't. But I wanted to pick up on this note of Palestine that you ended with because it popped up um, earlier in the conversation, and it's also um, very important from in in the present again, uh, making waves in in the news again, um, in in the actual lives of people. But there's actually a question from an audience member, and they've written with Palestine and the fact of statelessness as a technology of settler colonialism in the news, could the speaker situate the case of Palestine within the global crisis of statelessness that Harsha mentioned? So both of you can take it, one of you can take it as you wish. I can start and just um, say that, I, you know, it's a great question and, and what I was hoping to address earlier, you know, which is that really the crisis of statelessness and, you know, Palestinians being considered as the, the longest protracted stateless population, if you will, in the world, um, really has to be considered in the context of uh, global power, right? Like that statelessness doesn't just exist out of nowhere. And again, in uh, a Suchitra, you were mentioning, um, and as Hardeep, as your earlier question kind of provoked, right, that a lot of times these discourses can lend themselves to these humanitarian, liberal kind of explanations where people just happen to become stateless. So now we need to set up an NGO <laughs> or now we need international law to resolve the question of Palestinian statelessness um, that never squarely interrogates, of course, in the in the context of Palestine, the Israeli occupation of Palestine since 1948. Um, and so, you know, in that way, I think um, it's so uh, necessary to address the issue of statelessness in the context, as Suchitra already put it, in the context of the so-called migration crisis. There are two sides of the same coin, effectively, right? One is like people who have become migrants and the other is people who have literally lost their land um, and, you know, so-called citizens becoming stateless, um, and, it, you know, with other examples around the world of statelessness, like the Dominican Republic, for example. Um, and they're really flip sides of the same coin, which is, you know, increasing uh, state power and imperialism and occupation, which is literally stripping people of the bare minimum that the state affords. Um, you know, that is the one thing if we think the state does, regardless of what it does, is it gives you that passport and that right to citizenship, whatever that may or may not mean. And that is increasingly also being stripped away and denied to people, but which of course should not be a surprise, right? Because that is, that is, that is what occupation does. That is what um, that's the context of settler colonialism is to strip indigenous nations of individual nationhood of nations and assimilate people into the forced project of being Canadian or being American, for example. Um, and so in that way, you know, to me, it's actually very similar to hearing a lot of indigenous peoples that I work with in inner cities who speak of themselves as refugees or stateless. Um, and I think, again, those those not to homogenize or conflate across those differences, but to think through statelessness um, as a flip side of uh, the migration crisis and also its relationship to indigeneity, right? Um, to the land back movement, what Palestinian liberation means in relationship to land back, um, to, to, to uh, refusal, refusal of Zionism, to refusal of settler colonialism. Um, and so I think that squarely has to be in the center of whenever we're thinking about statelessness is what's on the other side of what has created statelessness, which I don't think 
um, get centered a lot in these kinds of liberal discourses of, you know, people being um, charitable recipients um, once they become stateless, of, you know, being forced into refugee camps or of the UN or of international law, which never implicates systems of power, right? Never condemns, never condemns. Uh, I think it's kind of, um, you know, um, repeating many of the things that Harsha already said is that I think it's very important for us to be very specific. Um, Palestinians fighting for dignity and freedom um, and, and, and their homes, uh, Kashmiris fighting for freedom um, is very different than uh, Hindu nationalism, which is ethno-nationalist, which is um, or Zionism or white settler colonialism. And I think it's very important for us to specifically um, acknowledge the roles that an oppressor plays um, and what that oppression means for large communities that continue to fight and struggle for freedom. And a lot of that, you know, you could see that within um, black radicals, just, you know, black rad radical traditions and struggle is that you're struggling for something that is universal, that sense of freedom, right? Um, and I think that needs to be, we need to repeat it over and over again. And within the Palestinian question, and I think it's something that, again, the language, right? The language of um, what does it mean for a Palestinian um, life to be taken with such ease, with such justifications of um, um, such justifications, um, there was there was some. I, I recently saw. Um, I, I think it was someone who said, "Oh, you know, we are." There was a Zionist comment that said, "Oh, no, we are the only people who weep for the loss of their children as our children." And I was just taken aback by the violence of that language. Right? Like, what do you mean weep? You know, you you are the oppressor. Um, and I think we do need to make those the, those very specific um, differences. And there's also this um, the straw man argument that often gets used within the context of nationalism. If not this, then what? You know, um, I think those are all questions that one has to confront. And I want to go back to the idea that history and memory is very local. And I think that we really need to understand that you cannot um, you can speak about disposition of a people without depriving the other people of their history. You can speak of the Holocaust and anti-Semitism uh, without conflating that with critiques. Um, but at the end of the day, I think what we really need to focus back on is a question of who is trying to fight for dignity and freedom from and from whom. And I think that naming the oppressor, I think, is very important. Naming the act of violence is very important. Um, calling someone a white supremacist is very important. Um, and I think those are all uh, very much a part um, of those state of the liberatory framework. Or what does it mean to think about a future in which there is a borderless state where our rights are not uh, deprived? But other than that, I think Harsha has kind of um, eloquently summed up everything. I just don't want to repeat everything that you said. Just picking up on your last notes, and then we'll have to move to closing statements. Um, there's another question from an audience member, and it's uh, specifically for Suchitra, and. It, I'm, I'm posing it here because it ties into something you've already been talking about. Um, what form of difference do you discern in the narratives of borderlanders in South Asia with regards to their grievances against bordering practices? 
I know it's a big question because you moved across 9,000 miles. So I'm right. sorry to um, that. The grievances. Um, I mean, I saw this. It's not, I mean, I saw this in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. I saw this across um, all of the subcontinent's borders is that um, here the world changes every 100 feet. Um, and I'm, I'm not just, this is not just an, a narrative uh, rhetoric that I'm using. The world really changes every hundred feet. There's a difference between living right next to a floodlight and living hundred feet away, which is a difference between the floodlight, you know, directly beaming into your house and just you having a little bit more relief. I think more than grievances, I think one acknowledgement was a certain sense of erasure of their history disposition of their land, the way in which their lands were being remade. Um, I think that was something that everybody was struggling to speak about. Everybody spoke about, especially if you spoke to someone when I was traveling and I was, I was speaking to people who were in their 80s or 90s, their racial political memory of a border or a frontier was very different from what they're seeing in front of them. So one thing that that was repeated across these borderlands, again, across whether it was Afghanistan, Pakistan, whether it was the Pakistan border, whether it was the, 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 the India-Bangla border, whether it was Kashmir, this constant sense of disbelief that their memory of their home had been completely snatched away from them. The idea that um, that their homes no longer exist as what their memory holds. So you definitely found that with people. Um, in the book I talk about, um, all of them saying, you know, nobody thought, even those who wanted an independent Pakistan, those who wanted, um, who migrated for a different world, never imagined the fortified militarized border that we have today. The second thing that you hear heard over and over again was the idea that somehow their history and memory was not reflected in the national history. I think there's a, you know, you often say that, you know, this happened, but that does not appear. I don't think people understand what happened to us. I don't think, um, and it's complicated. Memory is messy. We are complicated. People who became victims are also uh, those who who danced on the dead bodies of others, right? So there's a complicated relationship when that kind of violence is unleashed on society. And but in the more everyday action, the grievances. One of the things there's in the early chapter, um, there's this young man that I, that I speak to says, you know, he says he's asking the question, do you know what people smuggle? People smuggle cough syrup and chilies and birth controls. You know, there's, there's, there, this is what, I mean, they're not smuggling, you know, <laughs> what we call smuggling or what people are, they're bringing in the basic needs that they couldn't find here, right? Um, and the other story, you would see how because of militarization, the land becomes unfarmable. Because of climate change, land is no longer farmable. Because you occupy so much land and you put border fences, the once lush farmlands are no longer farmlands. The ocean, I mean, because of climate change and also because of, of, of environmental degradation, the ocean no longer has the fish. So what are what are people left to do? Right? People are trying to make a livelihood. People are trying to um, so people trying to make that little bit of livelihood. That's that struggle for dignity, making that extra five rupees every day. So end of the month, you have enough to send your child away to a school or get it. I mean, 
those struggles for everyday dignities are often looked down upon as if these are acts of criminality. And I think that you would find across all of these borders, the absolute destruction of communities. Um, even in Afghanistan, the first chapter, you see the Afghan local police is who who, who does the, the Afghan local police made of? You know, uh, the NATO forces decide that, you know, it's, it's a local problem. Let's just throw money at it. Let's just pick up a bunch of boys, train them for a few days, give them a hundred dollars, and they will be the fighting force against the Taliban. You know, again, no sense of history. But who are the boys who get picked up? It's the boys whose family has they've lost everything, who don't have access to land, who don't have, you know, a society that's in complete hubris. You pick on its most vulnerable. And I think in terms of grievances, I don't even I don't even think they would call it grievances. I think I think I don't even know what is it that you would do. So I think these three things kind of appeared over and over again across all of these uh, communities and societies. So we're at time now, and I'm getting the signal that we should close. So I wanted to thank the both of you for joining um, the audience and I in conversation today and just congratulate you both on two amazing new texts that are out in the world. And I'd encourage everyone to find themselves a copy of either uh, one of these books and ideally both um, and listen to what these two authors have to say. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, Hardeep, thank you so much for for this. Uh, congratulations to you too. Uh, I know I know you are uh, Dr. Hardeep now, uh, but also, also Harsha, thank you so much. Thanks for 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 your work. Thanks for your books. Um, I'm just so honored that you made time for me, the book, and for this conversation. Um, thanks for the generosity. I'm I'm just overwhelmed, and thank you so much. And also Hardeep, thank you for putting us in conversation and making all of this and everybody who made this possible. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.